From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Uh, we are coming to you post-Labor Day. Um, Zach, how's it, how's it going? How was your weekend? Uh, you know, it was pretty relaxed. Did a little bit of family stuff when spent some time out at my dad's house. and Nice. You know, just nothing, nothing too major. It's also in Seattle. Uh, he lives uh, outside of Seattle, but not okay. that, about an hour and a half away. So a good, a good drive for the day, but not too bad. Um, but you know, it's one of those things where, as we discussed last week, it, it's for well, we didn't really get into this, but one of the challenges for me with things like this kind of holiday weekend are that going places with the kids is kind of like there's like a weird, there's like a, a very clear point where like going past a certain distance or amount of time of commute with them in a day is like functionally impossible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and weirdly, like both my dad and my mom who are divorced, they like live in different places, but both of them are like right at the th- kind of outer edges of that limit. So like we can do a day trip to their houses if once in a while, it's like kind of worth it to deal with the, you know, three hours in the car mm-hmm. round trip, but much further than that. And it's like, we better be taking it overnight, which is kind of how I would feel even if we didn't have kids, but it's greatly heightened with children. So, you know, there's a lot of car time involved to make a day like that happen, but it's nice. And, you know, it's nice for uh, the kids to get some grandparent time and the grandparents to get some grandkid time. So what is the what's like the traffic traffic situation in Seattle? I've been a few oh. times, but I can't. Is it like notoriously bad? Oh, God. oh I yeah. see. <laughs> I mean, no one really cares enough about the nuances of why going places in the greater Seattle area right now is rough. But you have this mix of like, and a lot of construction you have. um, My dad actually lives across uh, Puget Sound. So we sometimes would take a ferry across. We didn't this time because it's just there because the ferries are themselves dealing with like real issues with uh, labor issues. And they're running fewer ferries than they used to. And when you throw in, it's a holiday weekend. It's just, they're such a shit show that I'd rather deal with the traffic which was pretty brutal but yeah uh, we have we have a a day-to-day it's not so bad for me uh Mm -hmm. for us but but getting through the city when people are trying to do it and on mass is really hard um the people who designed the federal highway system did not anticipate perhaps seattle's growth as a city and shockingly i-5 which is you know the main freeway through downtown seattle goes down to two lanes basically through downtown seattle which is um, a design Ooh. flaw, as it turns yeah. out. Um, <laughs> so. Hard hard to make that work. Everything else is like an exit lane, uh, and yeah, it's just a mess. So anyhow, um, oh, that man. was not the that was that was a part of the day where I was like, I really need a drink. And so not then, so what did you drink? Yeah, uh, you know, so a couple of things for me. I I don't know why. Maybe we will eventually get to this on the podcast sometime. But like this weekend, Labor Day weekend, always feels like a very like beer kind of weekend for me. Yeah, I mean. I drink beer year round in various forms, but like there's something about it and maybe just the kind of like, it's not the true end of summer, but we had really nice weather, which was great. And I just was like, I want some, I want some beers. So I drank um, a couple of different beers from uh, some local breweries, uh, Pilsner from Chuckanut Brewing, which is uh, one of my favorite local kind of Pilsner-y style beers, just really clean and crisp. They, they make it like, you know, Pilsner, I think we've covered on the podcast before fall into this interesting category to to me where sometimes the gap between like a really great Pilsner and a like goodish Pilsner doesn't feel very big, but when yeah. you have one, you know it. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the chocolate pilsner is really like a great one. Uh, and then some um, hazy IPAs, uh, the head full of dynamite from Fremont Brewing, I've talked about on the podcast before. Uh, one of my kind of consistent go tos. And I'm very excited. We're getting close to one of my favorite times of year, which is uh, fresh hot beer season. Yes. Most of the breweries around here have uh, started uh, making those beers. But uh, I think I don't think anything has hit the shelves yet. I think probably a week or so out from that. And then I will probably be talking about those beers on the podcast plenty because I make a point to drink them. Yeah, I feel like it was just yesterday that we were talking about these last year. Well, time they were very good. goes by, Joanna. Yes. What about you? What have you been drinking? <laughs> um, so a few things that I've had recently that have um, been really great. Um, I I feel like every time I now talk about sour beers, but I did have another really good one from Talea here in New York um, called Tart Deco, which is a peach cobbler sour IPA. Um Definitely not like a beer for every day, but um, it was kind of very fruit forward, but not too tart in a way. Um, I feel like a lot of sours are um, had mm-hmm. a nice has a nice sweetness to it um, and feels very very decadent, um, cool. but not but not heavy. That was really great. And then uh, got dinner recently and had a pet nat, a German uh, pet nat. Uh, called Kiss Kiss Maddie's Lips, and it's from Staffelter Hoff um, is the the winemaker. Okay. 100% Pinot Noir, um, and that was really good. I haven't had a pet nat in a while. We don't talk about <laughs> we don't talk about those a ton at Vine Pair, um, but but that was really good. Not not too funky, but had a nice freshness to it. So so that was good too. Um, and then yeah, I also had a really delicious passion fruit margarita i feel like passion fruit is on the precipice of exploding as a flavor what do you think that's really interesting so like i think it i think there's something about those kind of would you call a passion fruit kind of like a sour fruit or something like i don't know how you describe it exactly right like i think tropical fruit but it's not like a tropical fruit in the way that like mango is or something well maybe more like pineapple in a way where like the tartness of it is a big part of the yes flavor profile and that i think definitely fits into the kind of yeah the sort of mood of of drinkers right now where like there's there's an exotic note to it or like that tropical note to it but also mm-hmm. tartness it's not kind of luscious and sweet and so you know my like i've never ha- i've only ever had passion fruit as like a beverage flavor i don't think i've ever like eaten one like i'm not fresh. even really sure yeah. what you do with the i've had like a passion fruit sorbet and stuff but again like mm-hmm. never had the fruit itself so you know my frame of reference is kind of based around that but yeah i i think that is plausible to me and i think again you know as as we've talked about and we'll i'm sure continue to talk about we are in this period of time where you see so much emphasis on flavor yes and this, and flavors i guess not just flavor as a whole but flavors as a selling point for all kinds of different things in the drink space. And you see kind of some people hewing to very traditional flavors, but also people looking at, you know, how can I put something in front of people that they haven't had before or, or isn't already kind of well saturated in the market. And if you're, if passion fruit is the thing that, that blows up, then yeah, maybe you're well positioned. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Um, I, but I do feel like I've been seeing, seeing it in different iterations a lot more recently. Interesting. Before we get into this week's topic, I just want to add a brief note about last episode in which we discussed the pina colada and failed to reference any of the new data oh, yeah. <laughs> that actually shows that the pina colada is 
increasing in popularity uh, with 87% um, like growth Mm -hmm. during the second quarter of this year, um, according to Nielsen data. So definitely seeing it more on bars, like menus across bars and restaurants and people ordering it quite a bit. So that definitely informed our conversation last episode, but nobody mentioned it. (laughs) And I'm sorry. We need Adam. Sorry, folks. Oops. Um, So today we're talking about something else. Mm -hmm. We're heading straight into fall. Very, very excited for this. And so we thought we'd discuss hard cider, Mm -hmm. a category that no one seems to talk about anymore, that lives in the shadow of (laughs) its other boozy brethren, hard seltzer, FMBs, RTDs, craft beer, of course. Um, but we thought we'd talk about it today because, yeah, because it's been a while and it's a category that maybe just a decade ago had lots of growth potential and promise that just kind of slipped away and declined over the last um, couple of years. So, Zach, we wanted to talk about, you know, what we see for the category and if it has any pathways forward to kind of regain any of that growth. Let's start with a little baseline here. So I think there was a period in time, and as you mentioned, you know, a decade-ish ago, when cider enthusiasts, advocates, and producers believed that cider could take a meaningful chunk of the American alcoholic beverage economy, for lack of a better way of putting it, that maybe it wasn't going to stand kind of where beer, wine, and spirits do, but that it would be a meaningful sort of fourth category. And that was, it would maybe debatable all along how truly possible that was. Mm-hmm. I think an argument in favor of it is that we've seen hard seltzer become that fourth category and and take a meaningful chunk of that market. Yeah. So so clearly there was space somewhere there. I think the question is to whether cider would have been able to do that in a non hard seltzer world or if they had if things had gone differently, maybe. But I think that the problem then and the persistent problem now for hard cider, I think, is that it suffers from a sort of bifurcated approach and market. Yeah. And by that, I mean, if you think about some of the most successful cider brands, Angry Orchard, et cetera, a lot of their appeal was their sort of straightforward flavor, their sweetness, mm-hmm. and a sort of like, you know, and and their ability to position themselves as gluten-free. Yes. And, and that was a big thing. But where they've been undercut, is a people have moved more and more, or at least a segment of the audience has moved more and more towards less sweet, less caloric options, right? That are also gluten free, like seltzer. And oh, not even in the cider space, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. Because I think the 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 dry cider camp has always been small. Yeah. It's always been a a, a small portion of the broader cider audience, which itself is already on the small side. Pretty small. Yeah. And what you've had is so you've had so you've had the kind of legs cut out from under the the bigger category, the bigger part of the category, by gluten-free options that are drier and less caloric that aren't cider. And for the people who for whom 
the sort of gluten-free side of it was the most important part, they might well prefer other flavors that just didn't have options or, you know, other bases or whatever. The seltzer might appeal to them more or offer them more variety. And then I think you have this other piece, which is that the the dry side of it, the craft side of it, the artisanal side of it has just never been able to make a super compelling argument for itself to a broader audience. Yeah. We might get into why that is, but I think it's at this point hard to debate that that is where we currently stand. Yeah. I I mean, I think I agree with that. And that's why even more recent data has shown that while cider sales are up, like more regional cider brands are growing, those smaller ones that maybe have are drier uh that like angry orchard and brands like that the sales there are declining and so i agree that if angry orchard kind of paved the way for the category then it lost a lot of its enthusiasts or people who drank that cider to these other categories along the way And, and also i think Hard cider kind of suffers from being perceived a very specific way, mm-hmm. which is like you said, it's it's apple, it's sweet. And even though there are offerings outside of that um, within the category, that's kind of what people associate with a hard cider, I think, yeah, in a way that makes it hard for the for the category to continue to grow or or, you know, be appealing to more drinkers. Um, especially when there's now such a vast selection of drinks available for people to have. Yeah. Well, think of it this way, too. There was a period in time when cider was sort of growing in popularity, when if you wanted a single serve of anything alcoholic, your only two options were basically beer or cider. And if you were not a beer drinker, you didn't like beer or you were trying to be gluten-free or whatever – Literally, your only like 12 ounce bottle or can option in almost all over the country was cider. That was the only other packaged drink. I mean, you couldn't get RTDs. They basically didn't exist. You couldn't get wine in a can for the most part. It didn't exist. You couldn't get, you know, seltzer. Obviously, it didn't really exist. It was basically those things. And I guess like, you know, other sort of an earlier generation of FMBs, you know, your hard lemonades and such. And, And if you if that wasn't the thing you wanted, if you wanted something that felt a little more premium or just that wasn't like, you know, malt-based alcohol with flavoring, then cider was basically your only beer alternative. And cider just, it's still a beer alternative, but there are many, many more now that as it turns out, people might prefer. Yep. And I think also, you know, there's this great article um, from Brewbound from last October that talks about just this. But um, I think what's really interesting there also is that, you know, tap, Cider was able to be, you know, a tap handle at places, uh, you know, at bars and restaurants and places like Buffalo Wild Wings. And that has, again, paved the way for smaller brands to be around and for, to be available for people to drink. But but as the, the interest in like an angry orchard kind of waned, those tap handles went over to to things like hard seltzer instead of another cider brand. And the same thing was true with retailers. Like if people aren't buying that Angry Orchard, they're less likely to replace it with another or continue to grow their cider selection and instead are just replacing it with more popular categories that have more promising growth like hard seltzer. 
Well, and I think you you kind of look at the other piece of this in in my eyes, which is like you see a lot of people now trying to sort of turn cider, frankly, into seltzer. And, and to be fair, yes. this has been going on since even before seltzer, like flavored ciders, ciders with adjuncts, things like that have been around for the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. And part of this is, again, to come back to this sort of idea of this bifurcation of cider, you have, for lack of a better way, the people who have treated sort of apples as and and all that as sort of the base material, but not really the centerpiece of what the finished product is about, or at least not, they're not sort of precious about it. And then you have the sort of craft side that's looking at traditional cider apples and, you know, single vintage uh, ciders and all this kind of stuff, which is cool, but I think almost not really worth spending a lot of time on for the sake of this conversation, because it's such a small market. And I think something that we both enjoy, but I think also like is perpetually going to be a kind of niche thing, which is great. We like niche things just fine. Mm -hmm. But when you sort of look at okay, we're going to use apples and, you know, the sort of alcohol that comes from fermenting them as our base. And then we're going to layer on all this other flavor. I also wonder if like cider can compete economically because apples are more expensive than, you know, grain, right? Or, you know, it's just the reality is you can't, you have to charge more for your product, Mm -hmm. presumably, because even if you're buying apple concentrate or something, I think it's got to have a higher cost to it than the equivalent in, you know, wheat or you know, malted barley or whatever you're using as your base. Yep. And that part of it makes it really hard to stand out. Now, there might be some some paths forward. We'll, I think, get into that in a moment. But like, functionally, I think one big piece for, for what we're seeing now is just like, will people care that it's a technically a cider and not a seltzer or whatever? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, that is a good question. Because like you mentioned, we're seeing a lot of you know, the innovation in the category echoing or mirroring mirroring what we're seeing in the hard seltzer space, which is, um, you know, different flavor packs, uh, you know, something like higher ABV, ABV or stronger, stronger versions of it, like we saw in hard, we see in hard seltzer all the time. Um, I do, I, I do think that even, I, I, I don't know, I just don't see it working. I think it can try can have like your seasonal fall pack but i think ultimately it will be hard for it to compete with hard seltzer by even just doing the same kind of taking the same tack as hard seltzer is to continue its growth or i, I yeah. suppose the category itself isn't even growing um and it's doing yeah. all it, it can to innovate as well i mean i think there's a path forward potentially if if a producer can make a sort of compelling argument about Something something differentiating, you know, sort of setting the the product apart in a premium sense that it's yeah. you know based on apples and not based on you know malt, which people do. Some people do have a sort of stigma towards, and and maybe understandably to some extent. But it just feels weird, like you know. I think we both looked at this. There was a piece from March by um, Beverage Industry that's like you know kind of this beer report, and like you see all these sort of products that we're we're seeing out here, and it's like you know you're like got a strawberry lemonade light cider yeah. or cucumber agave light cider and it's kind of like what is this product right is it like like i think someone might pick it up it might be good this isn't a sort of a question about the sort of overall absolute quality but there is a sort of question of like what part of this where does what part of this being cider matters yeah 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 i think that i think it as a category it has a number of different challenges many of which we've spoken about like the premium part of it as well it being more expensive and it needing to be considered more of a premium product but then it's competing against things like hard seltzer and other malt beverages 
figuring out who's who's drinking it when it is kind of bifurcated, like you said, you know, coming up with these different flavors and packs and kind of emulating hard seltzer that way, but then having this other part of the same category in 750 milliliter bottles and so sold alongside wine, I think it just makes it really, really confusing for consumers to kind of understand the occasion for hard cider. Well, and I think the last piece of this is, or all last piece of this, at least in my eyes, is that there's also this kind of problem of how are you reaching these drinkers in the first place, right? Right. And if you're craft beer, say, your answer to that question is, you know, in large part these days, tap rooms, maybe right. beer bars. And you mentioned that cider has had a really hard time holding on to taps, you know, even in this world where, you know, draft beer, et cetera, is, is not as important just because of thing, changes that have happened since COVID. But mm-hmm. but even it's, even so, it's still a, a big part of the, the market. And so if you're losing, if you don't really have, you know, tap handle space and your product is going to kind of get lost in the shuffle on shelves, if it even gets there among many other canned or bottled products these days, it's kind of like where where do people even come across this stuff, right? right. Like you kind of you kind of are looking for this sort of mythical customer who wants cider, but also wants flavor, but wants premium, but also wants pa- like it's just they're, they're, I don't really know who this person is, or you know I'm right. sure they exist. There are some of these people, but at a at the core, I guess that's an apple pun. I didn't even think about it. <laughs> you have this this just issue of you failed to make space for yourself when there wasn't the competition. And now I just think the comp- there's too much competition. There are too many categories and too many, frankly, really big players looking for enough of your presumed market that I just don't really know how you compete at a large scale. Yeah. I mean, I think also what we've been seeing then, and these are, this is not a, a large scale, this is in smaller regional brands, but seeing them extend to other categories like a hard hard lemonade or hard teas um, and going outside of their, you know, again, core um, offering of hard cider to attract drinkers in a different way and hopefully bring them to the category, um, which I think is interesting. And, and, you know, that's tough. That's kind of a tough thing. But but yeah, again, I I would love to hear more um, from from people who or cider makers who um, who deal with this challenge kind of firsthand. Well, and I want to I want to kind of add one or ask one last thing of you, Joanna, which yeah, is yeah. before we kind of wrap up this conversation, taking a moment to look at that piece of the market that I previously dismissed the people who are really interested in these sort of not just craft, but really kind of, I guess, artisanal ciders, small production, maybe made from heritage cider varieties or, or you know, that are, that are playing much more in that space that are frankly much more analogous to wine yeah. than they are to beer, FMBs, canned cocktails, etc. Do you think that side of cider has any room to to sort of take a space from wine? Because I, I, I actually think that's more plausible to me than the other side, but I want to hear your thoughts first. I think in a very specific way, and it's in the context of the natural wine conversation, um, which is something that we've discussed before, but kind of cider 
paving the way or being a gateway for natural wine. And now, you know, I think they're very, in some sen- in some cases, they're very similar um, in terms of flavor profile. Obviously, cider is made from apples, but like you said, sometimes other fruits are added in. And I and I think that is probably its biggest area of opportunity because in in terms of still wines or fine wines that I just I feel like there it's hard to compare on a shelf to get somebody who's coming in for a fine wine to opt for cider instead. But if you're going in for a funky natural wine or a pet nat or something like that, I could easily see somebody picking up a nice bottle of dry cider. Yeah. Well, and you're already seeing some kind of hybridization of the category yep. as is. I wrote, I wrote for the site a few exactly. months ago about this sort of category of what I called multi-fruit wines, which were basically wine grapes co-fermented or blended with some other fruit, often apples or pears. And there are reasons for that. I'll, we'll link to the piece. You can go read it. I won't repeat it on here. But that whole, again, a very small, very small kind of category of drink at this point. But that I, that whole notion, I think, is part of the reason why maybe you'll see a little bit of growth on this side of the market, why we are seeing growth on this side of the market, because the blo- the, the line between you know natural wine and natural cider is pretty you know, it's really just a matter of what the fruit source is. And I think yep. if you're doing some of the same kinds of fermentation styles and whatnot, you're going to get a kind of similar tasting product either way. The other possibility is, and, and this is more speculative, I don't really know the answer to this, probably should ask around, but I wonder if there are some uh, climate change slash sort of smoke related mm. reasons why cider might be a little bit sturdier in the American West than grapes. I, I don't know. It's quite possible that smoke taint is a thing that happens to apples as well. Hmm. Um, I, I, it wouldn't shock me to find that out. Um, I Maybe seasonally it would know. be different, no? Well, I mean, possibly. But again, like I said, I just, I, I've never even seen anyone discuss it in the context yeah. of apples. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I, I, it may be that it's a real issue. I, I just have no idea. But it is true that, that um, you know, the harvest may not quite align, although I think they're, you know, they're within the same you know, they're not that far apart, I don't believe, you know, mm-hmm. apple harvest season is, you know, now-ish as is wine, you know, grape season in most places. But it may just be that that category, that base is more robust. And so, yeah, maybe people don't just go away from fine wine. I don't think that will happen. But maybe there are people for whom, you know, uh, is, again, especially producers here in uh, in the Western part of the United States and other places that are you know, struggling with with the risk of smoke damage um, in some years, if not most, that producers that can offer a a product that has you know artisanal quality is site specific and interesting and complex that doesn't run those same risks. If it doesn't, again, <laughs> purely speculative here, mm-hmm. that might be again a, a way over time to gain some market share. Because, like, I'll speak to here in Washington State, like. A lot of what were historically apple orchards, now granted for table apples, not for cider apples, but still right. what were historically apple orchards were ripped out and replaced with vines because at some point wine grapes became a more profitable product than mm-hmm. apples. It's always remained somewhat close. I mean, apples also command a pretty high price, but if that math swings, people will make the opposite decision at some point. Um, they'll have to, presumably. So. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think the craft side of cider, the fine side of cider has some 
continued room for a little bit of growth. But as mentioned earlier, it's a smaller part of the cider market as a whole. So it's not, I think, something that cider as a whole can be that excited about. Can rely on, yeah. Yeah, I don't see it happening on a, on a large scale the same way that we saw what happened back in like the early 2010s yeah. with the category. But we'll keep tracking it. Of course. And uh, if, if you have thoughts on hard cider as a category, if you have any hard ciders that you love, um, please feel free to email us at podcasts at vinepair.com. And otherwise, Zach, I will talk to you on Friday. Have a wonderful week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.